Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, we'll be reading verses 1 to 11. Matthew 21, picking it up in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that through your word, you would accomplish your good purposes. Father, I pray that you might help me, Lord, to not be an impediment or a distraction from beholding Christ. Lord, would you help us to see Jesus, to see the glory of Christ as we give our attention to your word? And as we also think about the death of Christ, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You and I have many commitments, commitments to ourselves, perhaps commitments to jobs, commitments to our families, commitments to perhaps different forms of recreation, commitments to various different things. And sometimes those commitments compete against one another. And so it requires discernment, it requires you knowing sort of what you value most in order to help you determine which priorities, which commitments to prioritize. The other thing about commitments is that commitments require some self-sacrifice. You have to sort of die to yourself to some degree in order to make a commitment. Say for example, a commitment in marriage requires that both parties regularly die to themselves in order to serve one another. A commitment to children right, requires a, a, an hourly, perhaps an even a minute-by-minute minute dying to yourself for the good of your children. 
A commitment to your job requires to die to yourself as you give hours upon hours to your work and hours that you would perhaps otherwise would like to spend doing something else. As we consider Holy Week this week, as we sort of entered into this week, historically known as the week where Jesus has entered Jerusalem and is headed to the cross, this being the final moments of his life, Jesus was a king, he was a man committed to something peculiar. He enters Jerusalem, and people worship him. At that point, he was sort of at the height of his popularity. People knew about him, had heard about him, had heard of his miracles, had seen his miracles firsthand. Word had spread. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and so the people worship him as king. But as we turn our attention to this passage, we see that this king had his own commitments that he had to follow through with. So as we turn our attention to Jesus Christ and considering his commitments, first we see that his commitment was was a, a peculiar commitment. And it is a peculiar commitment because of the nature of his commitment. And the nature of his commitment is one that involved his death. So in other words, Jesus was committed to dying. And as he enters Jerusalem, we see this commitment towards his death. But even though this was a commitment that he was looking, more than looking, but he was insistent upon fulfilling, we see also that this was also part of the plan of God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, The apostle Peter, preaching to a crowd of people, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So while Jesus was committed to entering Jerusalem and thereby also committed to his death, we also see, according to the Scriptures, that this was according to the plan of God. It was according to the plan of God, according to the foreknowledge of God, not that God foreknew, that God knew what was going to happen, but that God actually orchestrated this, that God actually planned this to happen to Jesus Christ. Now, reading this and considering this, it might sort of come across as Jesus is sort of this passive person of a sort of a passive obedience that he was committed to this because it was according to the plan of God. And so he was simply following through in the plan of God. Now, elsewhere in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says that he will be delivered to the hands of sinners and they will condemn him to death. So while is it the plan of God, it seems that also sinners had a hand in the delivering up of Jesus to death. In Acts 3.13, in another sermon by the apostles, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, 
speaking to the crowds now whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. According to the plan of God, but also at the hands of sinners, Jesus is delivered unto death. But did Jesus go to his death kicking and screaming? Did Jesus go to his death begging and crying out for release? Was he pleading on the cross for his release or for for mercy, for pity upon him? Isaiah 53 verse 7 answers that question where it tells us, speaking of Jesus, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So according to the plan of God, Jesus was delivered up. According to the hands of sinful men, Jesus was also delivered up. But he did so silently. And one might be led to conclude that Jesus was somehow forced into this and his being arrested, delivered up by the hands of sinners, walking according to the plan of God. But for who can thwart God's plans, the Bible tells us. But Jesus was not forced to do something that he did not want to do. But as I said, this was a commitment that he made. And a commitment requires a free choice. Someone has to be willing to put themselves in a position where they are committing themselves to a task, to a responsibility, or to a person. No, this was Christ's commitment It was Passover, the time of celebration or commemoration or remembering what Christ or what God has done in the past and delivering his people from slavery in Egypt through miraculous signs and wonders, concluding with the final sign of God that was the the taking of life, the killing of every firstborn child in every home in Egypt. But God provided a way to protect the Israelites, that they would take the blood of a sacrificial animal and put the blood on the doorposts. Only then would the angel of God pass over that house and move on to the next and not take any life in that home. This was what they were commemorating. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem, as everybody else who is a Jew enters in Jerusalem to remember the Passover. But Jesus enters Jerusalem willingly, knowing that he was about to enter into his final hours of his life. Even in the passage that we read, he went to Jerusalem. He commanded his disciples to go get the donkey and the colt in order to fulfill scripture written centuries ago. And nobody forced him to get on the donkey. Nobody forced him to enter into Jerusalem. Jesus did so willingly. Even though going into Jerusalem, knew, he knew that it was his certain death. Even also knowing that the religious authorities of the time, who already were enraged by Jesus, at that point, knowing that he would go into Jerusalem and receiving worship of people, what he knew that would only further infuriate the religious leaders who already wanted to kill him. 
even entering Jerusalem, he could have fled. He could have run away at any moment, at any point. As you fast forward towards later in the week, and he's spending his last supper with his disciples. And in that moment, what does he do? He tells his betrayer, Judas, one of his disciples, to go. Do what you're about to do. In other words, go and betray me like you have planned to. And even moments later, in the middle of the night, when he's praying in the garden, and the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, one of his disciples unsheaths a sword and strikes one of the soldiers, cuts off an ear, and Jesus commands him to sheath your sword. He commands his disciples to not defend him, to not protect him. Galatians 1.3, speaking of Jesus, tells us, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Yes, according to the plan of God, yes, Jesus was delivered by sinners to death, but Jesus also gave himself over to death. Which again makes this commitment of his in entering into Jerusalem and headed towards his death such a peculiar, peculiar commitment. Because again, he's headed towards his death. Not only that, but it is a peculiar commitment because of the good that he's done in his life. One might argue, why would Christ do such a thing? Whether you're a believer or not, if you know anything about Jesus and anything, anything and everything that he's done in his life, if you've ever read through the Gospels and you know everything he's done, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, curing the leper, providing for those who needed food, caring for the weak and the helpless, he certainly did a lot of good in his life. And to some people, it may not make any sense as to why he would go to his death. Jesus, you have done so much good in your life. What benefit is there for other people, for yourself, or even for the world, for you to go willingly to your own death? Does not your life present a greater benefit to others than your death? Another reason why his commitment is so peculiar is because of his honor and praise. People worshipped Jesus. People revered him. People respected him. People admired him. Some people can only dream of becoming so well-known and respected and even famous Surely hated by some, of course, because nobody is ever liked by everybody. But still, people worshipped him. They followed him. They respected him. People provided for him and his disciples. And as we see here in our passage this morning, people even lined the streets to worship him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Someone might think, who in their right mind would give all that up willingly and die? Now, if you're saying to yourself, well, that's easy. I mean, I would never struggle with something like that. It's because you've probably never been in that position. In a position where you have the admiration and the praise and the respect of so many people. 
I think any one of us would find that incredibly enticing and incredibly tempting, tempting and incredibly attractional. And Jesus had all of that and still gave it up because he was committed to his death. That would then lead us to question his commitment. Such a peculiar commitment, but why make such, such a strange commitment? And so the reason for such a commitment is what we turn to next. And the reason for such a commitment first is because of his commitment to his father. John 18, 37, passage that was read earlier, then Pilate the one who had the authority either to release Jesus or to crucify Jesus, said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Jesus understands his purpose. Jesus knows who he is, and Jesus knows what he has come into the world to do, to bear witness to the truth because he has been sent by the Father in order to bear witness to the truth. Everybody is looking for truth. Everybody wants to understand what truth is. A lot of the problems in our society and culture right now is because people are trying to understand what in the world is truth. You need only look to the Scriptures. Did you know that the Gospel of John has the word truth more than any other book in the entire Bible? The Gospel of John itself is a book of truth. And what is truth? What is the truth that Jesus has come into the world to bear witness to? The truth is that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus has come down from heaven. That Jesus is the Word of God. The truth is, is that man is a slave to sin. The truth is that freedom from sin comes from the truth. The truth is, is that Jesus is the only way and the truth, and the life. And the truth is, is that if anyone will enter into heaven, if anyone desires to be with God forever and ever, then they must go through Jesus Christ. In totality, the truth is everything that Christ in his word tells us concerning himself, concerning ourselves, concerning God, and concerning the way of salvation. Jesus entered Jerusalem, resolved to go to his death because of his unrelenting and unwavering commitment to his Father as the one who has been sent into the world to bear witness to the truth. In John 12, 27, Jesus prays for the Father's will. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Well, here's a shocking prayer. So committed to his Father that Jesus prays for the Father's will. Here is Jesus. He says that he is troubled. Why is he troubled? Because he knows that he is moment from experiencing agony and pain and turmoil and distress through his being crucified to a cross. 
And rather than praying for his own salvation, Jesus prays that God be glorified. This is how committed Jesus was to his Father and the plan of the Father. That the Father's plan and the glory of the Father took precedence, took priority over his own personal salvation. Not only was Jesus committed to his death because of his commitment to his Father, but it was also a commitment to his own glory. When we commit ourselves to something or to someone, it requires a sacrificing of ourselves. And in part, we do so because there's an expectation that we will receive something in return. Not always, right? We don't always receive something in return when we commit ourselves to something or to someone, right? A person or a couple in which one of them has been confined to a bed, not able to do anything to even be able to, say, eat on their own, right? In that sense, that person cannot give anything in return. But that's why a commitment is a commitment, But generally speaking, when we commit ourselves to something, we have an expectation that we'll get something in return. If we commit ourselves in our marriages, right, we expect that we will then have a thriving and flourishing and healthy marriage. If we commit ourselves to our children and raising our children, the expectation and hope is that they will be good citizens and hopefully, Lord willing, be godly men and women. When we commit ourselves to our work, the expectation is that we will get wages. We will earn a living to provide for ourselves and others. What was Jesus after in the pursuit of his own death and this unrelenting commitment to his death? Jesus was in the pursuit of his own glory. That's what he was after. In John 17, verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In John's gospel, he makes quite clear that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the glorification of Jesus Christ. Yes, people lined the streets to worship Jesus and glorify him though they didn't completely understand who Jesus was and what he came to do. But that glory was his to receive because of what he was about to do, and because of who he is. But in his lifetime, the climax of his glory came at the crucifixion. It was that glory and the glory that comes after that he was in the pursuit of. The glory that comes from man is nothing in comparison to the glory that he receives on account of his death. 
the New Testament is clear, the kind of glory that Jesus received after his death, that he was seated at the right hand of God. That he's given authority and dominion over all power and authority. That he is preeminent, that he is given supremacy. That Jesus is not only worshipped as God, because he is God, but Jesus, in addition to that, is worshipped as the God-man. Christ committed himself to the pursuit of his own death because of the prize of the eternal glory that will come through the cross. And he considered that it was well worth his life. But let's not think to ourselves, well, of course, he can give himself to that death and even endure such an agonizing form of death because he's God. And certainly that is true, but let's not, let's not forget that Jesus is also man. So every sweat of his brow was an actual sweat of his brow. Every time his body was beaten, his body was bruised. With the nails went through his feet and his hands, he actually bled. And he did so because he was fully man. Right? God does not sweat. God does not feel pain. God does not bleed. But Jesus isn't just fully God, but he is fully man as well. And so the pain that he felt on the cross is the pain that you and I would have felt if we were there in his place. So Jesus was committed to his own glory. And thirdly, the reason for Christ's unwavering and unrelenting pursuit of his own death was because of his commitment to his people. And it was, it's, it's a commitment that has been there since the very beginning. If you go all the way back to Genesis and the first transgression, when man disobeyed God, what, is, what happens is that God then curses man and curses the world. But even in that curse, then we see God's commitment to his people. He says in the curse, he embeds in it a promise that one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And then we fast forward to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Speaking of the virgin who will conceive a son, it says that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For or because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came into the world in order to save his people from bondage to the devil, from the tyranny of sin, and from the judgment that those sins deserved. Jesus came to set his people free. First John tells us that this is the reason why the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy, not just weaken, not just lessen the load, but no, to destroy the works of the devil is the reason why Jesus came into the world, to destroy those works. If I picked a fight with Jackie Chan, I wouldn't just get bruised up. No, I'd be destroyed because I can't stand up to a guy like that. Jesus came to earth to destroy, to pulverize the works of the devil. 
Praise God for that. And he did this because he says in John 8, 24, that unless you believe in him, then you will die in your sins. John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he, that God has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is through the crucifixion that Jesus destroys the works of the devil and our bondage and tyranny to his works and enslavement to our sins. And Jesus also speaks to the fruit that his death produces. In John 12, 23, says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The reason why Christ was committed to going to the cross was because his death would accomplish more good than his life ever did. The fruit of Christ's death outweighs, outnumbers, outperforms the fruit of his life. Salvation isn't possible apart from Christ's death. It is through his death that the way is open for us to salvation. Jesus has become the door to eternal life. The door is open for anyone to enter through, through faith in the Lord Jesus. They will embrace him as Lord and Savior. So it's for this reason why he was so committed to his death and was willing to endure the agony of such a death. Rob Conrad, former football player for Miami Dolphins, 2005, he was out late in the day, late in the evening, on his boats, fishing. He had caught something, but then a, a strong wave came by, tossed the boat, and he ended up actually falling overboard. And his boat was actually on autopilot. So he knew that he was not going to be able to swim to his boat and catch it. And he was nine miles off the coast. So what he did was he tried to swim to the coast alternating between backstroke and frontstroke, had been stung several times by, what do you call them, by jellyfish. At one point, there was even a shark circling him until it finally left him. He saw a boat afar that couldn't see him. There was a helicopter looking for him, and it could not find him. 16 hours later, he reaches the coast, half dead, struggling with hypothermia. And days later, he was interviewed about his ordeal, and they asked him, what got you through it? Like, what propelled you to, to swim for so long to, to get to the shore? You know what his answer was? He said, I have two beautiful daughters waiting at home for me. 
man, if we might put Jesus in an interview and ask him, from where did you draw the strength to go to the cross? How did you find the resolve, the, the seal to, to stick through with this commitment to go to the cross? And he might answer, I was committed to my own glory. I was committed to fulfilling the Father's plan. But I think he would also answer that I was also committed to you. Because on the other side of the cross, right, the Lord Jesus saw your face. The Lord Jesus knew who you were. And he was committed to going to the cross, enduring the agony, the suffering of the cross, so that you and I might be saved. So that having considered the peculiarity of his commitment to his death, and having considered the reasons for his unrelenting commitment to his death, let us lastly consider that this was a reasonable commitment and that we are left with a reasonable commitment. For anyone, whether here or you're watching online, consider that this is a reasonable commitment. It is a reasonable commitment to commit yourself to Jesus Christ. And what I mean being reasonable, meaning it is logical, that it makes sense to commit your life to following Jesus Christ. How does this make sense? Well, consider Christ's commitment to his own death. Right? Would you not agree that it made sense? Yes, painful, agonizing, but it made sense that he would commit himself to his death because of reaping the rewards that would come after. It made sense that he would do so. Does it not make sense for you to make a similar commitment to follow Jesus Christ? You might ask, well, well, you had said that commitment requires self-sacrifice, that it requires for you to pay a cross. Well, if I am going to commit myself to following Jesus Christ, what's the cost? What do I have to pay in order to give my life to Jesus Christ? Jesus says in 1225, in John 1225, Whoever loses his life, or sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, Jesus says that the cost that you have to pay is the cost of your life. You must give up your life. At this point, I might have just dissuaded you from committing your life to Jesus Christ, but bear with me for a moment. Consider, consider the cost of not following Jesus Christ. Jesus says that unless you believe in me, you will die in your sin. There is a price to be paid for not following Jesus Christ. And the gospels is clear. The price to be paid is an eternal life without Christ. It's an eternal life of punishment, looking to pay for the price of your sins, a price that will never be paid. That is the price or the cost of not following Jesus. Consider that, but also consider the reward of following Jesus. Yes, you will have to lose your life by committing it to Jesus Christ and relinquishing ownership of your life and placing it in the hands of Christ and making a commitment to follow Jesus for all of your life. 
but the reward that you will receive is eternal life. Life with God, life with Christ. Jesus says elsewhere that the cost of following him requires an allegiance that looks like, that will look like a hatred of the world. But in the end, you'll gain much more. Peter, speaking on behalf of the other disciples, had once said to Jesus, Jesus, look, we have left everything in order to follow you. And Jesus commends him. And Jesus points to the fact that you will receive much more now and in eternal life in the resurrection. John Piper, sort of commenting on that passage, says, there is no cost that you can pay in following Christ that won't be made up to you a thousandfold in the resurrection. Yes, it will cost you your life, but you have so much more to gain by committing your life to following Jesus Christ. So consider the cost and consider the reward and choose today to give your life to following Jesus Christ. By placing your faith and trust in him. Now, dear saints, Believers, those who have already made that commitment to follow Jesus Christ, the imperative is the same, to commit to Christ. Take time to consider what your commitment to Christ looks like right now. How does your life display a commitment to Jesus Christ? Consider Christ's commitment to his death as the means of your salvation, knowing that Christ displays such an unrelenting, an unwavering commitment to his death for your salvation, how can we then not also fully and unwaveringly and unrelentingly commit ourselves to following Christ? So what might that commitment to, you, to Christ look like for you? What things do you need to lay down at the foot of Christ? What things do you need to give up? Are there personal preferences that you need to lay down at the foot of the cross? Are there sins that you are struggling with that you need to just hand over to Jesus Christ and let go as a commitment to following him? What desires, personal dreams, and ambitions, and goals that you have that might impede your commitment to Jesus Christ? Those might be things worth considering laying down at the foot of Christ and asking him to do according to his will. and not just your own will? Are you committed to his word? Not just reading it, but committed to applying his word. Are you committed to communion with Christ, to praying to the Lord, praying for yourselves, praying for others, praying for God's people? Are you committed to the Lord's church, to serving the bride of Christ, are you committed to holiness? Are you confessing sin regularly before the Lord? Are you fighting sin in your life? It's a way of committing yourself to the Lord Jesus. Consider what things might be impeding you from that commitment to Jesus Christ. God is not asking that we give only 25%, 50%, or even 99%. But no, Christ demands that we give our entire lives to Jesus. 
to following Him, to doing according to His will first. So as we reflect on Palm Sunday and Christ entering Jerusalem, we're reminded of a king who shows a peculiar commitment to his own death. But we see, and hopefully we understand as well, his reasons for such a commitment. A commitment to the Father, a commitment to his own glory, and a commitment to you and I for our salvation. So with that in mind, let us also give our lives fully to following Jesus Christ, committing ourselves to him. And let us also remember that there is great, great gain in doing so. Let's pray. Lord, we are, we are so thankful for your entering Jerusalem, for your entering into the, these final hours of your life. Lord, we would not be here today. were it not for your death on the cross and your resurrection. Lord, and through the gospel, you remind us of how committed you are to us. And we have your word as a reminder to us of how committed you are to us. And that commitment isn't always what we might desire it to be. We have our preferences, we have our own goals, we have our own desires but sometimes, perhaps even many times, what your commitment to us looks like is not what we might always want. But we thank you, Lord, because your commitment to us is unwavering. You are committed not only to our well-being, but you are committed to our sanctification. You are committed to our endurance. You are committed to our holiness. Lord, may we trust you. Even though there may be times when we don't feel as though you are there and that you are committed to us, Lord, remind us of the gospel, remind us through your word that you are committed to us because you tell us in your word that you will not lose a single one of those that are yours. So help us to trust you and help us, give us the grace to give our lives fully unto you for your own glory and for our own good and for our own joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.